Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew uh, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And please do, because I think it's important, is as much as you can hear from me, it's better to read the word along with me. See it for yourself. It's about studying this word together. That's what corporate worship is. Now, some of you, you're going to be familiar with this text. This is the one where Jesus is walking on water, and Peter comes running out after him, only to fail and sink. But to truly understand what's happening at this point in time, we have to get a little bit of context. We need to go to the preceding passage. We need to go to what happened just before now to really kind of get a grasp on what's happened. And in particular, with verses 13 through 21, Jesus has just learned that John the Baptist is dead. Now, John the Baptist was the one connection we had from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's the one who was pronouncing Jesus. He's coming into the world. The Savior is coming into the world but now he's gone. And in hearing this news, Jesus seeks to retreat to a mountain by himself. He's trying to get some time to pray with God the Father. But a large crowd finds him, and they follow him. And do you know the amazing thing about that? He has compassion on them. He feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish, and he heals the sick. And what a sight to behold, because look at it. They didn't have anything really to offer him. Really? Five loaves of bread, two fish? But he still met them where they were at, and he took it from there, and he multiplied it, and he blessed it. Let's pause here for a moment and see what's really going on. I think we get so hung up on the miracle, and it's a beautiful miracle. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think we fail to see Jesus' heart in this action. You need to remember that Jesus, he was looking for some time alone, and it didn't happen. Have you ever experienced that moment in life where you just had something happen to you? Maybe it was horrible. Uh, maybe it was life-changing. And you were just trying to get some time to process what was occurring. You just needed time to yourself. Let me give you a perfect example. I, I know you guys aren't familiar with it, but COVID, does that ring a bell? Yeah, we're all a little bit familiar with that one. But how did you handle things when you realized your daily routine, your life was about to change? How did you handle it when you realized that your kids and your loved ones we're going to be with you 24-7. If you were like me, and I'm willing to bet you were, you needed time to process it. Heck, you probably just wanted some time to yourself. But what happens when we don't get that time to ourselves? Better yet, in the midst of those moments, what happens when we have somebody else who approaches us with their needs? Do we get their needs to the forefront? Do you remain calm? Do you think about them instead? Look, when it happens to me, I wish I could tell you that I'm the best person in the world. I'm nice. I'm going to take care of you. That's it. But the truth is, I'm selfish. It's about what I wanted. It's about me, for better or worse. But Jesus doesn't do that. He continues to show his heart and who he is by always caring for his flock. And look at the grace and the mercy and the love that is presented in this preceding passage. It teaches Jesus' disciples to reflect on Christ's compassion for his flock. Better yet, it shows them that he is the bread of life. It teaches us that our needs are only met when we come to Christ. And as the disciples are trying to understand this, they're trying to make sense of all of it, we are now prepared to turn to our passage today in verses 22 through 33. But to study this right, I want to read the whole text all the way through. We'll do a once-over, and then we'll start to break it down verse by verse. So again, if you have your Bibles, please follow along, open up your phones, whatever it takes. I want you in God's Word. 
So we'll go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, and we will start at verse 22. Okay, here we go. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening had come, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out with his hand, and he took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You know, I think it's interesting that we start our passage in verse 22. And what's the first word that we see? Immediately. That is, Jesus immediately sends off his disciples in the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But why in the world does he do that? Why does he rush off his disciples after this miracle of feeding 5,000 people? It's just such an odd way to start it if you think about it, and especially as we read this passage. And Matthew, he really doesn't address why, but I think this is the beauty of being able to read through the entire Bible. That's why we need to be in the Word. As the other Gospels, they help fill in that gap. You see, both Mark and John, they record the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And in particular, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, they actually give us, he gives us this answer. So if you have your Bibles, again, let's go to John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and we'll get an answer of what's happening. Okay, here we go. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So now we come to understand that Jesus was sending his disciples off. He's trying to protect them from the crowd because they don't understand Jesus himself. You see, they're trying to force him to be king, but that's not Christ's uh, mission that's not what he's there for yet. Yes, he is king, but he still has to go to the cross. Otherwise, we have no hope. Now, when we turn to verse 23, he goes up to the mountain to pray. And before we go any further, I think it's important that we pause and we reflect on what's really occurring. That is, look at verse 23 again, because it does something really unique. It repeats the fact that Jesus is alone by stating he went up to the mountain by himself and he was there alone. Again, why does it do that? Why the repetition? And I believe the reason is, the verse, it shows that Jesus is ultimately, he's setting up an example for us to follow. And to flush that out, let me ask you a question. How often do you come home from a stressful day of work? I mean, you're burnt out. You've been working hard. You've been sweating like we are right now, okay? And the first thing that you do, the first thing on your mind is, I'm going to go right into the bedroom to go pray with God. Okay, uh, let me reverse it. How often do you come home tired and you just binge watch Netflix instead, eat a tub of ice cream, um, 
Maybe get on Facebook or even just pass out. But what does Jesus do? You see, this text helps us to put things into a new perspective. As Jesus was tired, he had a long day. They make that apparent in the text. Yet he knew the importance of turning to make time with his father. Moreover, Jesus being God was surely aware of this impending storm that was about to hit his disciples. There's no doubt he was interceding for them in prayer. In other words, Jesus knew that the only way to be spiritually sustained and refreshed was by praying. And so if you're taking notes, the first point I want you to grasp, the first thing I want you to get is that our faith, that comes from God. But it is strengthened and it is renewed when spending time with him. Again, our faith, it's from God. But it is only strengthened and renewed when you spend time with him. Now, when Jesus is in prayer, we next learn in verses 24 and 25 that the disciples, they're in the boat, and they're a long way away from the land when he comes to them. Even more so, we discover that the wind and the waves, it's battering them. They're hitting a headwind. And I think it's important to remember because you have to look at the time period. It's not like these guys had a boat motor back there going, and they're going really fast across the Sea of Galilee. No, they're old school. They're rowing it. They are tired. They're fighting this. But to help paint this picture better, we need to look at verse 25, where Jesus came walking towards the boat. Because the text says he did it in the fourth watch of the night. And this is going to give us an example of just how long these guys are at it. How long are they truly rowing? And to understand what the fourth watch of the night is, the Romans, they broke down the time period between 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches, three-hour periods. The first watch would be from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. 9 p.m. to 12 p.m., and you get the idea, and it goes on and on from there, 12 a.m. When it gets to the fourth watch at night, we're talking 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. Now, Jesus had just rushed them off after he fed them. We know it was evening time when he sent them off. Now he's coming to them, and it's morning time. That means these guys have been at it for a minimum of 6 to 12 hours rowing the boat. And I don't know about you. I'm not in that good a shape. I'd have passed out after the first hour. But in continuing to set the stage to what we see the disciples and what they're witnessing, what they're trying to grasp with, we have to keep in mind that the water that Jesus is walking on, it's not calm. And the reason I repeat this is because I don't know about you, but every time I read this text beforehand, for some reason I imagine they're getting battered by waves, they're getting hit, and they're fighting it. And here's Jesus on the calmest water in the world, just like, hey, what's up, guys? That's not what's happening. That's not what the text tells us. I don't know if that's because I watch too many movies. I don't know if it's because uh, my brain can only process it in a certain way. But I think what we learned from this text is that Jesus is walking on the same turbulent, the same unpredictable, ever-shifting waves that the disciples are getting hit with in the boat. I can't even walk on stable ground without eventually tripping over myself, let alone a rocky, stable surface like a mountain. But here we get an image of Jesus' deity, a beautiful image of his deity as the winds and the waves, they obey him. You see, when he's walking, they follow him. They follow his commands ever since they did from the beginning of time when he set the limits of where the water could go. He is the calm in the storm. So let's take all this into account because now we can better understand in verse 26 how these exhausted disciples, they have poor lighting. And some of your translations even say it was right before sunrise, so we know it's still dark outside. And they're trying to grasp and come to grips with all of this yeah, they're absolutely terrified what they're seeing. 
However, in recognizing this fear, Jesus immediately, he provides them comfort. He does that in verse 27. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And I thought this was so cool as I was doing my research uh, from the Pillar New Testament commentary on this gospel. Leon Morris, what he mentions is this same pronoun, I, it's the same one where God announced himself to Israel in the Old Testament and said, I am who I am. That is my personal name. I am who I am. In other words, once again, Jesus is hitting up double. This is my deity. I am the God-man. Now, of course, right after Jesus does this, here comes Peter. He's asking him to confirm it by saying, hey, Lord, call to me. Tell me to come to you. And Jesus obliges, and he simply tells him, come. And I think we need to stop here and recognize something, because uh, it seems like such a simple command, but really, it's a beautiful command. Think about this. Jesus didn't tell Peter, whoa, hey, no, 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 stop, hold up. I don't want you to come to me. Do you see the waves right now? Do you see how crazy that is crashing this boat? You can't handle that, Peter. Peter, you know what? You need to get your life together. You're not ready for this. Or Peter, you need to check your faith because you know he's God. Jesus is God. He knows that Peter has little faith at this point. He didn't tell him to stop, though, did he? He didn't tell him to wait until the chaos and everything subsided. No, in the midst of everything, he tells Peter to come to him in spite of that. And I think what's amazing in the lesson we learn from this passage, and really these verses, and this, it's just we live in this crazy, scary, unpredictable world. And just like Peter, God doesn't tell us, wait until you get your life together. Look at everything that's going on around the world. It's a little bit scary. You need to hold off. No, he doesn't tell us to do that. He doesn't tell us to wait. He doesn't tell us to wait until we've got it figured out in our heads. Rather, he calls us to come to him in spite of that. And because it's only through him that we can survive these turbulent times in his peace, his stability. So if you're taking notes, the second point that I want you to get is God calls us to pursue him in the midst of our trials and fears. Again, God calls us to pursue him in the midst of our trials and our fears. You know, in continuing to expound upon this text a little bit more, really kind of hammer it home, um, I think the next part, it's, it's extremely difficult. This is where we love to beat up on Peter. Oh, man, if he just had a little bit more faith, he'd have gotten everything right. But I think it's here we, we have to stop that line of thinking because let's face it, Peter was the only one with the goal to actually get out of the boat when none of the other disciples would. He was the only one who went towards Jesus when the others stayed back. And Peter was a fisherman. He knew the wind. He knew the waves. He knew the sea. He knew the dangers. Yet he still did it. And I think, though we see inevitably that he fails in verse 30, he starts to sink. He still has the presence of mind to sit there and say, Lord, save me. Now watch what happens next in verse 31. Here's that word again. As immediately... Jesus reaches down to save him. Immediately, he reaches down and he takes hold of Peter. And then he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, Jesus, he's not chastising Peter. There's no exclamation point where he's yelling at him. That's not what he's doing. It's not like he's looking at Peter and Peter's over here drowning going, ah, oh, Peter, man, you screwed up. If you'd have had a little bit more faith, if you'd have figured this out in your head, no, he doesn't do that. Jesus instead saves him immediately and asks the question of why Peter ever doubted him. 
not himself, why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt Jesus? Isn't that a beautiful image of the gospel? Think about it. Peter runs out to God. He's pursuing him. He ends up failing. Yet God still meets him where he was at. And again, Jesus knew Peter had little faith at this point. He knew he was going to fail. Yet he still met him where he was at, just like he does with you and I. And this should provide us a bold confidence in knowing that in spite of what we bring to the table, which is nothing, frankly nothing, he still has us. He still got us. It reminds us of John chapter 6, verse 39, and how Jesus discusses that those whom the Father gives him, he will never lose, he will never let go. It teaches us that we must stop caving into this fear of trying to have a perfect faith before we can truly seek Christ, like that's the only time he would ever accept us. No, those are lies from Satan. These verses show us that this is the exact reason we should be running to Christ. It goes perfectly in line with all of what Scripture teaches us, that our faith is perfected when we turn to God and when we receive the Holy Spirit, who is the perfecter of our faith. So if you're taking notes, the third point I want you to get is, God doesn't call the righteous. He calls the sinful and broken who seek him. Again, God does not call the righteous. He calls the sinful and the broken who seek him. Now, how do we know that's true? Scripture, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus states, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And remember, Scripture teaches us that it is through our weakness that Jesus' strength is made known. So I think as we wrap up this text and we get to the application, we see Jesus and we see Peter enter this boat, and they're with the other disciples now. And of course, the moment Jesus enters the boat, the waters, the wind, what does it say? It says they cease, showing again how they obey their creator, that he is the peace in the storm. And the only proper response to this episode, what do they do? The disciples worshiped him. They comprehended for the first time and started to grasp for the first time ever in Matthew. They call him the son of God. Truly, you are the son of God. So as we close, I want to give you a quick reminder of how we started this message. And it was with the background on Jesus feeding 5,000. And I read a commentary on this, and I loved it, and I had to share this. You see, author David Platt, on his commentary in Matthew, he discusses how that the passage where Jesus is feeding the 5,000, it shows a faith in the face of need. In other words, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one who provides. He is the one we need. When we get to our passage today, though, I love this even more. He says, this one shows a faith in the face of fear. So naturally, even with all the points that we've discussed thus far, the question becomes, how does this apply to us today? How does this matter? Why should it matter? How does faith help us to face our fears in this broken world? And for this, let's reflect on something unique that occurs in this passage three times. If you caught it, and if you look hard in there, three times you'll see the word immediately, immediately, immediately. Each one is coordinated with an instance in how fast that Jesus takes care of his disciples. And when you hone in on that last one, which he goes to grab a hold of Peter, and when Peter calls on the name of the Lord, God grabs him, he, he hangs on to him, 
And what it shows is that when you call on the name of the Lord, it's the same thing. And how do I know that to be true? How do I know that it's immediate for you and I? I point to the bloody cross. The work is already done. The price is already paid in full for those who come to Jesus Christ, who accept him as their Lord and Savior. He's already taken upon all of our sins, the sins that cause us to drown in a world that's full of brokenness and unpredictability. I look to his amazing grace, his mercy, his love that Jesus showed us in imputing his righteousness to us. And this gracious act assures us that in spite of our shortcomings, our weaknesses of faith, what we bring to the table, which is nothing, it assures us that when you just pursue Jesus, we can have a faith in the midst of fear, knowing he has us and he will never let go. So if you get nothing else from what I spoke today, the only thing I need you to remember is that your fears are only truly overcome when you turn to Christ. Again, your fears are only truly overcome when turning to Christ. And it's because of that beautiful fact that we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be afraid of death, separation from God. No. It's because of that fact that we too, just like the disciples, only have one proper response, and that's to worship the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And the one way that we do that is through communion. Because communion allows us to reflect on all Jesus has done for us. It allows us to let go of all our fears as we fellowship in the presence and the peace, his peace of Jesus. So as we turn to sit at the table, our passage is a reminder of this privilege. It's a reminder for those in Christ that we don't get to sit at this table because of what we did, not because of our works, because again, we don't bring anything to this table. We don't get to sit at this table because we're perfect. We're far from it. It doesn't mean you have to be sinless before God either because you're not. But that's why he came to the cross. That's why he died for you and I. Rather, we sit at this table as a result of God's gracious mercy, his love, Jesus' work on the cross. And we sit at this table because in our lack of faith in seeking God, God still meets us. He still saves us. You know, I think it's fitting. It's Fourth of July weekend. A lot of us, you've probably gone to some barbecues. You might be going to some right after this. I don't know. Going to go for some fireworks shows. We often hear Independence Day weekend, our freedom is not free. And, and it is. It's a beautiful thing that our men and women have fought for, our brave men and women in uniform. And we're appreciative of that fact. But I think the truth is this statement really only finds its conclusion. It, it's, it really only finds its center when you apply it to Christ. Our freedom is not free until Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for us, set us free from sin, set us free from death, from separation from God. Now, before we pass out these elements, I do want to kindly ask and just give a humble warning. If you haven't accepted Christ yet, please, when they hand out the elements, don't partake of it. And I know that sounds harsh. I get it. But it's meant to be a warning in love. Because otherwise you would be sitting there saying before Christ, I don't need you. That when you go before God on judgment day, I can do it on my own. I can stand justified before the Lord. And we can't do that before a just God who does not accept sin. So again, if that's the case, that's okay, you're not there yet. What I would ask you to do instead is just hold off for now, but pray and wrestle with God. Talk to him. Ask him to lead your heart. And better yet, after that, come see me. 
Come see any of our leaders here. We'd love to sit down, come beside you, and walk with you as you get to know Jesus more. With this, let's go to prayer, and then we'll get ready to hand out these elements. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of this day. Thank you for this Independence Day weekend where we find our true independence in you. That we don't have to be afraid of sin or death. That in the midst of fear, we know we have you and that you will hold on to us and you will never let go. That in spite of our weaknesses, you are our strength. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this special privilege. And we pray as we get ready to go before you here, we thank you that we can sit at the table with you, that we can be in peace with you because it is your peace that you provide to us. Father, I pray that each man and woman in this way would, as they receive these elements, that they would see what it represents, your body that was broken, that it was beaten so we could be with you, that your blood was shed for us. Father, help us to meditate on this. Help us to just... Just open our hearts to this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I ask our leaders to come to the front to hand out the elements. Please continue to meditate on these truths. That awesome privilege that we have in overcoming our fears with Jesus Christ. Let's humbly reflect on what this morsel of bread represents. Now I know it's hot, guys. I get it. But can you imagine how hot and tired the blood and the sweat and the tears that he poured on that cross for us? That's a reminder of that. And that's our privilege to just be able to taste it in remembrance of him. So please, take it and eat it in remembrance of him. Next, we reflect on this juice. And we reflect on that blood again that set us free, that allowed us to come home to God because of what he did on the cross for us. Please take it and drink it in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we have the privilege just to be able to see, to taste, to understand your words, your heart, that we get to grasp onto it. Thank you for never letting go of us. Thank you that we can come to the table and we are set free because of you. Father, it's such a privilege. It's one that I pray we would never let go of. And again, I pray you would be with each person here this Independence Day weekend, that you would help them to see their independence, again, only comes from dependence on you. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, thank you. And it's in his holy name that we pray, and everyone said, amen. If you would, let's stand and worship our King.